All right, guys. Um, if you got your Bible, uh, open to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we are picking back up um, where we left off last week. If you were here last week, you know we studied chapter 1, hit Paul's prayer for the Philippians in verses 9 through 11, which means today we're going to pick up in verse 12. And uh, our passage today is going to be verses 12 through the, the first part of verse 18. You'll, you'll kind of notice that the last little tag of verse 18 actually is under the next subheading in your Bible, right before verse 19. Uh, yes, and I will rejoice. We won't cover that. But anyway, through the first part of verse 18, and I hope some of you were able to, to uh, read that. I, I was a little late putting it in the group me, but maybe you saw that, and in your euphoria over in Auburn victory, you were able to read that passage and become even more euphoric. Um, well, when we come to verse 12 today, it's this, we're getting into now sort of the, the, the meat of the letter. Paul is finished with his sort of introductory words, and he's now moving into the main part of the letter. And in our passage we're going to see today, Paul's um, going to turn his attention to his circumstances, um, which are as a, as a prisoner. Uh, that Paul, Paul's uh, being in prison sort of looms large over this letter, and there's a whole, uh, whole, whole uh, section of, of the letters that Paul wrote, which we call his prison epistles, because he wrote them uh, from prison. And this is one of those. He's going to talk about his, his circumstances being in, uh, in prison, but he's only, only to talk about that in order to, to also talk about several good things that have come about because of that. And so what I want to do this morning is sort of follow Paul's lead on, on, on this and kind of see what we can try to think his thoughts after him and see what we can learn from what he's telling us here. So and I want to, again, try to leave some time around our tables at the end where we can, you can discuss it on your own. Um, let's go ahead and read our passage, and then I'm going to try to lay out what we're going to see and then dive in and, and try to see it. So if you found Philippians 1, verse 12 uh, through the first part of verse 18, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, or uh, praetorian guard, as some of your translations may say, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, and we come under it again today. We come under it, uh, recognizing it to be that which I just 
described. And, and so we, we humbly submit ourselves to it again today, and we ask yet again that you would give us eyes to see the truth in this passage. Help us to see what you would have us to see in Paul's words, your word through Paul. Then give us minds to understand very clearly what Paul is saying here. And, um, and, and not just minds to understand it, but hearts to embrace it so that we might be changed by it. and Thereby give us wills to do and to be molded into and to change and heed and obey whatever it is that you are admonishing us to do in these words. And give me the help that I need to teach it and to teach it rightly and clearly. And would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, if you're taking notes, here's, here's what I think we're going to see here. Let me just set the stage for what, it, what those points are going to be. If you've been here for the last um, uh, couple of weeks in our study so far, hopefully you'll remember kind of what has been his, his main theme of this letter so far. Um, I would argue that the main theme has been centered on what you might describe as gospel advancement. That's been his main theme uh, so far. Remember what we've already seen earlier in the letter. You think, like, back beginning in verse 3, Paul was talking about how he prayed for them all the time, and he thanked God for them all the time. Why did he thank God for them? Verse 5 said, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What did that mean? What did partnership in the gospel look like? Well, he went on to describe it, for example, in verse 8, when he, he, he talked about, um, uh, no, in verse 7, when he, he says that their, their partnership looked like um, their defense and confirmation of the gospel. Like they weren't just, he, 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 when he said partnership in the gospel, for Paul and the Philippians, he, he didn't describe their partnership as just being, you know, uh, a plate of cookies and, 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 and cards that they sent to him while he was in prison. No, their partnership in the gospel was he was catching wind 100 miles away in Ephesus through people like Epaphroditus and there were others. That man, in that hard place in Philippi, these believers were actually... I'm here in prison, but they are bearing witness to Christ. They are defending and confirming the gospel. They are active in what he's calling gospel advancement, like the progress and the spread of the gospel among those who had never heard, among unbelievers. And, um, and, in, our, and, and in our passage today, um, you may have noticed that although he's now past the introduction and he's in the, in the main text of the letter, he hasn't yet completely left that that theme, and he's not turning to something else. You know that because he literally, in verse 12, uses the phrase to advance the gospel. He's still talking about that. Why, why is that, that such an important thing to him? Well, you also might remember in last week, he, he was praying that not only, he didn't just thank God that they were already advancing the gospel. He prayed in verses 9 to 11 that it would, it would happen more and more and more. Why is that so important to him? Because, for example, in verse 10, he, he described that pursuit, that aim in life, that, that priority in life of, of wanting my life to be about the advance of the gospel, he called that in verse 10 as what is excellent. That is the excellent thing in life. 
right? The best thing, the most important thing, the highest priority in life. That's what he said in verse 10. He wanted them to come. When he said in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, he's saying, I want you to come to know that when you give your life for that, you are going to find it is the best life. It is the most satisfying life. It is what is excellent. Why did he see it that way? Well, I mean, no doubt he, as, as any other believer should, Paul would have known that was the commission that the resurrected Lord Jesus gave to every follower. Jesus didn't just say, you know, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He followed that up with that commission saying, and you take this gospel and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples. And, 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 and for him personally, for Paul personally, think about Paul's life. Paul had met the Lord on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 8 and 9, and, 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 and the Lord had said about Paul personally in Acts 9, 15, he said about Paul, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name uh, to the Gentiles and, and kings and to the children of Israel. So Paul knew that for him personally, but also for the, every Philippian that he's writing this letter to, and by extension, every person, we, who would ever read this letter, that the advance of the gospel is the highest goal, the highest purpose of every believer until he returns. Like there is nothing more important that we could ever give our lives to than that, right? Um, and hence, th- that's why his insistence on this basic issue. And I think what we see in our passage today and what we can learn from is, is not only in what Paul is saying, but what Paul is doing in what he is saying. I'm going to try to make clear what I mean by that. The points I'm about to give to you are not just about what Paul is saying, but what he is doing in what he is saying, okay? So if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see. In these verses, um, building on what, what I think he's doing, so Paul is going to give us three ways, three ways that we are helped, three ways that we are helped by having gospel advancement as the highest priority of our life. Three ways that we are helped by that, okay? So he has thanked them for being that. He has prayed that they would be more of that. And now he's going to say, here are three ways that, that you're helped when that's the case, okay? And the first one is this. From verses 12 and 13, we are helped by, by having uh, gospel advancement as our highest priority. We're helped. It helps us to understand God's strategic purpose for our life. It helps us to understand God's strategic purpose for our life. Um, Paul is demonstrating that in verses 12 and 13, in, in telling them how he understands his own circumstances of being in prison. Having gospel advancement as your highest priority helps you to understand God's strategic purpose for your life. Second, in verse 14... Having gospel advancement as your highest priority, it helps you lead others to follow Christ more passionately. It helps you lead others to follow Christ more passionately. Verse 14, I think, shows very well the counterintuitive nature of God's kingdom and his economy. It's a fun verse to look at. Um, so, So having gospel advancement as your highest priority will help you lead others to follow Christ more passionately. And thirdly and finally, Verses 15 to 18, we'll think about this quickly. It's going to show um, how it, it, having gospel 
advancement as your highest priority helps you recognize un- unnecessary distractions, helps you recognize unnecessary, and I might, you might even put it in parenthetically there, a better word might be unworthy distractions. It helps you under, uh, recognize unnecessary or unworthy distractions. And you saw how in, these, in those verses, 15 to 18, Paul is, he mentioned some who in all likelihood were slandering him and saying all thing, kinds of things that weren't, weren't untrue for him as they envied him or rivals with him. But rather than dwelling on the wrong of it, he just rejoices that the gospel is still being preached. That's what we're going to see. And uh, so let's go back to the beginning and think about the first way that having gospel advancement as the highest priority in your daily life helps you. And the first way is that it helps you understand God's strategic purpose for your life. Look again at verse 12. Paul starts, I want you to know, brothers, and if you took that phrase away, (laughs) if you took away, I want you to know, brothers, um, what he says in the rest of the verse would still make sense. It would still flow uninterruptedly with what he said before it. So the fact that he adds that, that in, intensive phrase, I want you to know, brothers, it, it shows that he really wants them to listen to this. What he's about to say in Paul's mind is very important. Why? Probably because he figures what he's about to say is completely counterintuitive to what they would have expected. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What, what had happened to him? Well, he had been arrested unjustly. He had been put in prison. He's chained and locked away in a cruel prison. Uh, they, they weren't as nice then as they are today. Basically a hole, a cave in the ground, chained away, locked away. And from their perspective, thinking about Paul, as it perhaps it probably would be for me too, to hear that Paul had been arrested, to hear that Paul had been in prison in a place like that, they could have easily thought, I probably would have easily thought um, initially that that's a big blow. That's a big blow to Paul's efforts to take the gospel where it hasn't gone yet, to get the gospel to people who needed to hear it. Paul wants them to know that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, because of what we're going to see in this point as well as in the next one, um, to see the, the, the point here is, it, it, what, what he's going to say here, it requires understanding Paul's thought um, and, and what the Bible clearly teaches elsewhere about just reality. When you, when you first see here him say, what has happened to me? I want you to know, brothers, that, that what has happened to me, that may sort of have a random or a haphazard sound to it. Just what has happened to me, Right? But we know from other places in Paul's own writings that that is the polar opposite for how he understood reality. That is the polar opposite, right? Let me just give you a couple of examples. What did, what did Paul say, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11? In Ephesians 1, 11, Paul wrote, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an, an inheritance, having been predestined according to, according to what? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's how he saw the Lord God. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And when he says all things, there is not one speck of anything that is exempted from that. Right? That's what what theologians call 
God's meticulous sovereignty. His meticulous sovereignty. Meticulous meaning every little detail. God is sovereign over it. That, that, and that is nothing more than what Jesus himself affirmed when, he, when Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why do you think Jesus chose a sparrow as the example there? Because sparrows are tiny small. They're tiny little birds, right? And even they don't do anything apart from the will of God the Father, right? Or think of an Old Testament example. One of my favorite memory verses. This is a great one to pray. This is a great when you When you are praying for a heart change for someone, when you are praying for someone who may be recalcitrant against the gospel, and you want them to grow soft toward the gospel and repent and believe, this is a great memory verse. It's a great one to pray. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's why we pray to begin with. Why pray? God, save them if God can't do that. But he can, right? But, it, but, that, but that proverb says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Why do you think, just like Jesus used sparrows, why do you think, whoever wrote that proverb, why do you think they use kings as the example in that one? Why, why use a king in the example of that proverb? Because in our view, kings are the ones who seem to have sovereignty. They are the ones who make decrees. They are the ones who decide things. Kings are the ones who make things happen. But what does that proverb say? That's a mirage. That's a mirage because the king's heart is being turned this way and that by the Lord. The Lord is directing that king's steps. He doesn't know it, but it is. What about... What about evil and wicked things? Because not all kings are good kings. Um, for that matter, maybe not all sparrows are good. Maybe they do. <laughs> I don't know. But what about evil and wicked things? Right? Scripture teaches that God is sovereign even over those things. Though he himself does no evil. Right? You see that clearly taught in a number of places. You think an Old Testament example, the, one of the, maybe the clearest Old Testament example is, is Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers? You put that out there. That's not good. Don't, don't sell people into slavery. And his brothers did that. That's a wicked and evil thing. But, but, but what do we learn in Genesis 50, 20? Joseph said, what you meant for evil, and it was evil, and you meant it for evil. You did evil. My brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God was sovereign over the selling of Joseph into slavery, but for a good reason, right? They did the evil. God was sovereign over it for his good purposes. Or think about a New Testament example. Maybe the, maybe the example par excellence. It's, it's on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. He talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. Maybe the most, no, the most heinous evil ever worked on the face of the earth. And Peter stands up and he tells the crowds, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is sovereign over it. Then he looks at them and says, 
um, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. The men who drove the nails were lawless men. It was wickedness. It was evil. But it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. For good, for the salvation of sinners, right? Why belabor this point? Because when Paul, sitting unjustly in a cruel prison, says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me He has no doubt in his mind that it was the Lord's will. The Lord put him there, right? It was the Lord's will that he be put unjustly in a cruel prison. And Paul knew that God did not have cruel purposes for that design in his life. God had good and redemptive purposes. Paul knew what, and Paul knew what to look for to discern what that good purpose was. Where? Where did he look to see that good design? in that curious providence in his life, that he be unjustly in a prison. Where does he look? He looks in what he's been talking about so far in the entire letter. What he referred to as the excellent thing in verse 10, which is what? The advance of the gospel. Taking part in that. Paul knew that is what is most excellent in our lives because that is the purpose of God in all things. To build his church. For the glory of Christ. That's the highest goal in life. That's, that's, the, that's the end point for which all of history is aimed. And so that is the purpose for every situation, every situation in which God sovereignly brings his people, in which he brings you. That is his purpose. To give you and me in every situation a unique situation in which to bear witness to Christ. That's it, right? That is precisely how Paul saw the purpose of his time in prison. Because what is it he wants the Philippians to know in verse 12? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Rather than being a blow to Paul's missions efforts, it provided a new and unique forum for it. And don't look at that and say, yeah, that's of course how he saw it. He's Paul. He's, he's an apostle. He's a missionary. I say that again because if you, I mean, if you read that in a vacuum, you might come to that conclusion, but you can't read the rest of the New Testament and come to that conclusion. Maybe another good example, if you read the book of Acts carefully, and you see that, that that's the case among ordinary believers. Just jot down, jot down Acts chapter 8. We won't turn there. But Acts chapter 8, maybe that's the clearest example. When when persecution arose because of the martyrdom of of Stephen, persecution arose against the church, so much so that they were forced to flee their homes. That's that's a bad day. What does does Acts chapter 8 verse 4 say? Those who were scattered, those who had just lost their home, those who had just lost everything, Those who are fleeing for their lives, those who were scattered, went about complaining. No, went about preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Even that was a unique opportunity for them to bear witness to Christ as more valuable than anything else they had. 
the point here is that having gospel advancement as the highest priority of our lives helps us to understand and discern God's strategic purpose for any situation in which I put myself. It helps me have clear eyes of what to look for in any circumstance I find myself in. How, in this situation, how can I bear witness to Christ? Like in how does this situation afford me a unique way to bear witness to Jesus? How might this situation make that person more attentive to what I'm about to say if I bear witness to Christ? The point is, every situation is a unique opportunity to do that and advance the gospel in the world. Judge the circumstances you find yourself in by that. And knowing that God has promised, even in very uncomfortable circumstances, to still be doing good in that. Jeremiah 32, 40, I will never stop doing good to you. So in whatever situation he brings you, he's doing good, he's sanctifying you, and he's serving up an, op- an opportunity. How can I bear witness to Christ in this? It's unique. God orchestrated it for you. So take it. And in Paul's case, he says in verse 13 that it, it had become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He probably never would have ever, ever gotten a forum among that particular group of people had he not been in prison. He never would have had access to the imperial guard. But now he does. And they, they know that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's what he says. And I think that carries a double meaning. My imprisonment is for Christ, meaning I'm here because I was bearing witness to Christ. But it also means my imprisonment is for Christ. I can now bear witness even more to Christ. And the New Testament says that, the, new, that the, 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 the early Christians rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. And I, just, that, I pray that that would be true of me and of you, that the, to see the advance of the gospel for the glory of Christ is our joy. Rather than being blind or just aimlessly floating through life, and just being blind to the oppor- opportunities around us, or worse, complaining about them, that's a challenge to me, and maybe to you too. But when we come to verse 14... Paul shows us another thing about, another good thing about having gospel advancement as the highest priority in our lives, and that is it, it helps us lead others to follow Christ more passionately. Look again at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That is an amazing verse. Like, when you really think about what he just said there, Paul is saying that other believers, presumably in Ephesus, where I think he was in prison, possibly Rome, other believers saw Paul's imprisonment. That's not just a word on a page. That's a reality. The man was in jail and a a bad one. Why? Why is he in jail for bearing witness to Christ and bearing witness to the gospel. And they looked at that and said, I want to do that. And they became became more confident in the Lord because he was in jail. More confident in the Lord. More bold to do the very thing that got him in prison. And to do it without any fear. Explain that. Like, that's, that's crazy. That is, that is, there, is, there is no purely human ex- explanation for that. Like, that's crazy. 
He's in prison, and that is no fun. What did he do to get there? I want to do that fearlessly. There's no, that is a supernatural work of the Lord in his economy of doing things. Um, seriously, it's, it's one of those things that on the surface just doesn't seem to add up as, as why someone would do anything, but it does in the Lord's economy. Just give you another example of, of this counter. You, 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 you live in an enchanted world, people. You live in the Lord's world. This is my father's world, it, and he does things his way, and it, and it, and it, it where he gets all the glory. Another example of, in, in the scripture of, of this kind of thing is, is like Paul's description of a, a church's generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, listen, to, listen to the way Paul, it's not going to be on the screen, just listen to the way Paul describes a church's generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 2. Okay, listen very carefully. 2 Corinthians 8 2. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Saying in the next verse that they didn't just give according to their means, they gave beyond their means. That, here's the equation. Severe affliction plus extreme poverty plus joy equals overflowing wealth of generosity. Like, it just doesn't seem to add up. And not just like, let me see what I got. No, it's like, I don't care what I got. I got this much, let me give more. Whatever that joy is seemed to count for a lot. That joy outweighs severe affliction, extreme poverty. Right? In a similar way, here in Philippians 1.14, Paul says that it, was, it wasn't this that they said, man, prison looks awesome. Let me do that. Maybe I can get thrown in prison. It wasn't that. He says in verse 14, they became confident in the Lord. In the Lord. It didn't just say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. They didn't become more confident in themselves. They, they became more confident in the Lord. And it was their, it was their knowledge of, of and confidence in the Lord that helped them see the path that Paul took and said, I want to go on that path, right? Despite any risks it might pose, the risks that they saw what it got him and it caused him no fear at all. That's confidence in the Lord. That's something different than human level. Only the Lord can do that in a person. But what that verse is saying, and Paul, what Paul is saying there is, even though that's a work that the Lord does in someone, just like the generosity thing, so it does in the fearless obedience thing. That is a work that the Lord does, but we can be the catalyst for that work in someone. We can be the catalyst. Absolutely, the Lord will have to do that, that work in somebody to make somebody unafraid of radical obedience. But the Lord used Paul's fearless, radical obedience to spur them on in that. Because he said, he says, they have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. That's what caused it. And what spurred Paul on to his radical obedience fearlessly? It was his knowledge and confidence in the Lord. Together with gospel advancement being the highest priority in his life, that enabled him to 
face his own imprisonment without fear, to see it as an opportunity even more to bear witness to Christ. And, and other believers saw that, and they wanted the, that same thing done in their own life. And that's the value of the church. That's the value of a college ministry like this, that, that we watch each other. We see each other. We see, we see the, the, the faithfulness of each other, the lack thereof or the seriousness thereof, right? And I, and I, and I, and, and I hope, that's, it's, the way, it's the way it happened in me when I came to Auburn as a student. And I want the same thing to happen in here, like still today. I want freshmen to come in to this college ministry, and I want those freshmen to see upperclassmen seriously following Christ. I want them to see, if you're an upperclassman, I want them to see you seriously following Christ, and I want you to cause those freshmen, like it happened in me when I was a freshman. I had never been around so many serious Christians in my whole life. God did something in me when I was a freshman. I want them, I want them to be radically changed because of your example. The Lord will do it in them. I want you to be the catalyst. I want, I want, I want them to see the, and then when they are the upperclassmen, it, it, it just continues to trickle down into the freshmen who will be there, there then, right? When, when Christ and bearing witness to him in gospel advancement, when that's the highest priority of our lives, the most important thing to us each day, that doesn't just help me understand God's providence over my life and why he brought me into this particular situation. It also helps us in, in, all, in all that to, to help others see our example and follow our example and, and the Lord do that sanctifying work in them. There's one more point I want us to consider uh, from the end of our passage today. Maybe you'll have a couple minutes around your table. And that is having the gospel, gospel advancement as our highest priority. It helps us recognize unnecessary or maybe unworthy distractions. I say unnecessary, and I also say maybe unworthy. Why? Because consider what we read in verse, verses 15 to 18. Paul had just finished in verse 14 talking about how um, with, the, with the Lord working through his example, old, other brothers had become more bold to bear witness to Christ. And now in verses 15 to 18, Paul's going to reflect some more on those brothers. He said you could really divide them up into two camps. Some who, through Paul's example, they were, they were sincerely and out of love preaching Christ after the example of Paul. But he says there were others who were preaching Christ but not sincerely, not out of love, following, not, you know, you know, not, not, not like the first group, but out of envy, out of envy of Paul and out of rivalry. That's, what it, that's the words it uses in verse 15, rivalry with him, rivalry. They, I guess they, they, they wanted the prominence. They wanted the notoriety that Paul had. <clears throat> and out of selfish ambition, Paul says at the end of verse 17, they have a desire even to hurt Paul, to afflict me. Maybe, how? Maybe by, they think it will hurt Paul if they increase and Paul cause Paul to decrease. You have to believe if those, if those words that Paul used to describe those brothers, if they, if they, if they mean anything, rivalry, envy, selfish ambition, desire to afflict me, they mean anything. Um, you know, it, 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 I have to believe that gossip and slander was probably part of that, right? Um, in other words, Paul's already said, my imprisonment has posed no 
barrier to gospel advancement in my life. But I, I, I do believe here, if he had allowed preoccupation with professing believers, making themselves out to be enemies of him, and potentially slandering him, his name, his character, that could have really affected Paul more than imprisonment could have. Um, having been in similar situations in pastoral ministry, I know that to be a temptation. But Paul, I have to admit, handled it better than I have often in my life because you see what his response is in verse 18. <coughs> he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. These guys have been making themselves public enemies of Paul. But Paul's like, they're still preaching the gospel. I mean, if they had changed the gospel, he would have lit into them. I mean, he, he told the Galatians, if, if, if somebody preaches a different gospel, I want them to go to hell. That's what, that's what he says in Galatians. But these guys at least got the gospel right. He's like, let them go. Let them go. Why, how could he just do that when his own name was being dragged through the mud by these people? Because the glory, of, it wasn't about him. The glory of Jesus Christ, the advancement of his gospel, that was more important to Paul than defending himself against every thorn. Some, some dis, potential distractions are not just unnecessary. They're not, they're not worthy to be distractions right? Paul rejoiced. I've heard it said, an immature Christian, an immature Christian is hard to please and easy to offend. But a mature Christian is easy to please and hard to offend, right? That, tuck that one away. <clears throat> I just think that, 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 is, that demonstrates a lot of maturity in Paul. Slandering me, they're preaching the gospel. Turn them loose. <laughs> I just want to point out here that Paul explicitly says that because gospel advancement was so important to him. It helped him recognize potential distractions that were unworthy of distracting him, even if that was enduring ridicule or offense. <clears throat> 